And just when you think you're about to nod off, Glenn pulls out the right hand and does his magic. That was beautiful, Glenn. Thank you. Well, uh, if you will, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. This is found on page 15 of your pew Bible. You're going to need to be in the Word today because I'm going to be making some references to some scenes that happened previously to this. Uh, But as we're turning there, I just want to say to you, uh, this is going to be the last time that we'll be in Genesis for the next three weeks. Uh, Next week, I'll be gone uh, for a conference. Uh, The Lord is calling me to suffer in Virginia Beach. Uh, And so I'll be suffering on the shores there as at a Christian counseling conference. Brother Brian will be preaching for us. Uh, Then the following week after that, we have our special anniversary, which will have a special sermon just for that event. And then following that, I have a big occasion. Uh, my daughter's getting married, and so Daniel has graciously volunteered to preach for me that Sunday and conclude his series on the Psalms. Uh, so just giving you kind of a heads up, uh, we will get back to Genesis, I promise, just like the commercial says. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for allowing us to have access to your word. We thank you, Lord, that by doing so, we know who our God is. And because of that, we can have absolute confidence, absolute trust, knowing, Lord, that you hold all things in your hands. So, Lord, strengthen us once again. Our faith is often weak, but we know through the power of your word, your Holy Spirit working through it, that you can make us strong. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, I imagine that it is probable that this story occurs in every American home where a teenager resides. It never fails to happen. You've given your teenager a warning. Clean up your room or you aren't going anywhere this weekend. And of course, the weekend arrives. The room is not clean. And said teenager has been invited to a pool party at Billy's house. And they asked to go. And you respond with, but your room is not clean yet. But you hear, mom or dad, this is an important party. Please let me go. What will be the words out of your teenager's mouth at that point? Yeah, I hear some of you. I promise I will clean it up later if you let me go, right? And we know how that goes, right? Or perhaps you have a big test coming up or a project at work, you're not prepared and you're not feeling very confident, and you think, well, this would be a really good time for me to barter with God. Lord, if you help me pass this test, I promise I'm going to do my Bible study every day for the rest of my life. Or I promise I'm going to help out at the shelter next week. Perhaps you pass it, but do you always deliver on your word? Even Martin Luther made a rash promise when he was a young man. He was out riding his horse, and he got caught in a lightning storm. And he made a bargain with God that he would enter ministry if the Lord spared him. And eventually, Luther did enter ministry, but not until several years later. In fact, he told this story of an example of his complete lack of faithfulness when he gave his word on a matter. We live among a people who do not keep their promises very well. Those of us old enough remember George H.W. Bush in his presidential acceptance speech of 1988. Read my lips. No new taxes. And sadly, he reneged on that promise two years later. And we had to hear that soundbite over and over and over again on the news. We're so bad at keeping promises that our musical poets have written songs about it. Eric Clapton's hit song, Promises, the chorus has the words, 
We made a vow that we would always be friends, but how could we know that promises end? This is the case with sinful humanity. We cannot keep our word. Sometimes we deliberately lie. Others, we discover a scenario that prevents us from delivering on our promise. But it reveals what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 3 to be true. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. That is the case with us, but not so with God. The Lord always keeps his promises. He is not a man that he should lie. He always tells the truth, always. Whenever he makes a promise, he delivers on it, always and always in his perfect time. This morning, as we return to Genesis, we're going to see God deliver on three promises. My hope is, is that by the end of this sermon, you're going to have incredible confidence in the promise-keeping God, so much so that your faith would be rock solid and you would entrust your very soul to him. So let's look at the first of these fulfilled promises. Abraham is now 100 years old. 25 years previously, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7, God first told this man that he would have offspring to inherit the land that he was living in. He once again reiterated that promise to Abraham in chapter 15, but sadly, Abraham and Sarah thought they would help God along by scheming to have a surrogate child through Sarah's servant, Hagar. And the Lord steps in again, and he promises in chapter 17 that no, the promised offspring must be between Abraham and Sarah, despite their old age. Abraham laughs at this. So too does Sarah when she learns of it from the visiting angels in the next chapter. And in chapter 18, verse 10, the angel of the Lord told this couple, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. This made Sarah giggle as she heard it through her tent. But now, at the beginning of chapter 21, it is one year later. And just as the Lord promised, it happened. This 90-year-old woman and 100-year-old man conceive and have a son. It's amazing. After all they've been through over these 25 years, there's not a lot of fanfare, just two verses here to announce it. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Now, to be sure, the acknowledgement here is that something impossible happened in a supernatural manner. This was a couple whom for at least 70 years of their marriage were unable to conceive. But now they do, due to the Lord's influence. Now, we should note, Sarah is not a virgin like Mary when she had Jesus. This happened by natural processes, but obviously in a supernatural way. And by this time, Abraham is continuing in his sanctification, learning to be obedient to God. As the covenant child, his new son receives the covenant sign of circumcision. And he is named Isaac, which means laughter. So in verse 5 here, the circumstance is announced once again to explain the meaning of this name. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac is so named not just for the joy that Sarah finally has a son through Abraham, but she knows that others are going to laugh at her at her situation. 
an old woman and an old man have a child that nurses from her bosom at an old age. Seven verses for this spectacular event. A promise fulfilled that the reader has been waiting over 25 years. (laughs) That's it. Seems a little underwhelming, doesn't it? Especially in comparison to the next episode in this family's life. Such a joyous event turns tragic as Hagar and Ishmael are cast out of Abraham's camp. Now, we have the occasion for this in verse 8. And the child, in this case Isaac, grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. Now, it was an ancient custom for parents to throw a party when their child was weaned from their nursing mothers. In our modern day, we celebrate birthdays. In earlier periods, rites of passages were celebrated. And one of those was when a child became independent from their mother's breast. The feast signified that the child could feed themselves independently. It would also signify that the infant had passed through significant threats during a time when infant mortality was extremely high, especially for elderly parents. That's what's happening here. Isaac would have been anywhere between two or three years old at this point. And Sarah witnessed behavior that concerned her greatly. Verse 9, But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, the word here translated as laughing is different from Isaac's name. Though the word play here that Sarah just said of herself in verse 6 is probably implied. Ishmael is mocking or making sport of his half-brother. Remember, we learned back in chapter 17, verse 25, that Ishmael was circumcised at age 13. The next event was the angel's visit when they said it would be a year later. Sarah would conceive at that point. That would put him at at least age 14 when Isaac is born. Now Isaac is weaned, which means Ishmael would have been at least 16 or 17 years old. And Sarah witnesses this teenager teasing her newly independent son. No doubt she was sensitive in such a matter. And here is her response, verse 10. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. Her actions were drastic. Send the boy and his mother away. He will not be an heir with Isaac. Perhaps in what she saw, she inferred some kind of malice on Ishmael's part. After all, God said back in chapter 16, verse 12, Ishmael shall be a wild donkey of a man and his hand against everyone. Sarah sees this happening and Ishmael will not become a rival to Isaac's inheritance. Despite the circumstances of his birth, Abraham obviously loved his older son. In fact, back in chapter 17, verse 18, Abraham tried to intercede with God on behalf of Ishmael. Now God must come and intercede on behalf of Hagar's child. And in verse 12, God tells Abraham to do what Sarah says. It's not just a matter of keeping peace in the household, folks. Note this. By God's very own words, Isaac is the one to inherit the promise he made to Abraham and his descendants, not Ishmael. 
However, God says in verse 13 that he will keep a promise to Abraham that he made to Abraham all the way back in chapter 12, verse 3, when he told him that in Abraham all the families of the earth will be blessed. God will make a great nation from Ishmael too. By this time, Abraham has learned to trust in the Lord's promises. So he does the second most difficult faith moment in his life. The top one will be in the next chapter. He sends Hagar and Ishmael on their way with just a little bit of food and one water sack. And they are forced to wander in the land of Bathsheba. Now, we'll discover a little bit later how it's got its name in the next episode, but let's move on with this one. The mother and child, they run out of water. Hagar feels that death by thirst is immediately inevitable. She places Ishmael under the shade of a bush, and then she decides to move away from him because she cannot bear to watch him die. So she moves maybe 50 yards or more away, and she is crying, and the boy is crying, and now God intervenes. Isn't that the case? Just when it seems that all is about to fail, that's when God shows up. When we are at our most desperate because we have tried all of our man-made solutions, that's when God does his best work. Now, it's at this moment that we should remember this is not Hagar's first encounter with God. She had run away from Sarah when she was first pregnant with Ishmael. And God appeared to her then as the angel of the Lord. And he had seen her situation. She even calls him the God who sees me. And he made a promise to her, back in chapter 16, verse 10. I will multiply your offspring, Sarah, so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. That is when he predicted that her child would dwell against his kinsmen. That is also when the Lord told her to name the child Ishmael, which means God hears. And what is happening here in chapter 21? God is hearing the voice of Ishmael. He is delivering on the promise that he made to this woman back in chapter 16, both to this child and to Abraham. And this is the second promise that will be fulfilled. God enables her to find water, and they survive. And we are told the Lord was with Ishmael, not in the same way that he was with Isaac, but he still blessed the boy. Ishmael marries a woman from her mother's land, and he produces a nomadic nation, which will become the Arabic tribes. Now, you can read about them in chapter 25. Ishmael will even gain some renown as an archer. Therefore, God also delivers on his promise to make Ishmael names great or well-known. So promise number two is fulfilled. Now, we could go several ways with this as God has been true to his word. Not only does Ishmael survive and produce this large nation, it also becomes a nation that opposes Isaac's descendants. Ishmael's family will produce Muhammad, the founder of Islam. And how vivid is that promise fulfilled in our present day as Ishmael is still against Isaac as Hamas wages war with the present nation of Israel? But because of Abraham's original promise of Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 through 3, in you all nations of the earth shall be blessed, I'd like to point out how the coming of Isaac fulfills this promise as well. It will be our third fulfilled promise this morning, and it has relevance for every one of us this morning. Please turn to Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is found on page 974 of your pew Bible. 
we'll be looking at what Paul understood about Genesis 21. And coming from a full-blooded Orthodox Jew, it is very remarkable. Now, let me first provide you with the context of the letter. Paul is writing an acknowledgement to the churches of Galatia. He had appeared to these Gentile churches and presented to them the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, became flesh and entered the world, that he lived a perfect life in complete obedience to the Lord's commandments and became a perfect sacrifice that could be presented to God without spot or blemish. And when Jesus was crucified on the cross, he became the perfect substitute for all people everywhere who placed their faith in him. Christ received the full wrath of every sin committed by the sinner. Nothing more is due to the Father. And as the perfect sacrifice, he provides his perfect righteousness or his right standing before God for everyone who believes in him. The Jewish Paul believed this so much that he wrote in chapter 2, verse 20 of this letter, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So Paul believed the sacrifice of Jesus was absolute and sufficient, and there was no more need to be made acceptable before God based upon faith in the law rather than in Jesus' sacrifice. But some Jewish teachers came to the Galatian churches and told them, oh, no, 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 no. All people who want to be received unto God must first adhere to the law, especially the rite of circumcision. Then they could become a child of God. In other words, if you want to be acceptable to God, you must first become a Jew before you became a Christian. Paul found this to be utterly appalling. If you'll pardon the pun. Paul will point out that the promise of God to participate in the blessed offspring came to Abraham before the law. We saw the same argument in Romans 4 just a few weeks back. The faith in the promise comes first. Then circumcision followed as a sign of belief, not the other way around. What matters is not adherence to the law, but faith in the promise that God delivers. So Paul will use this episode between Sarah and Hagar in a unique way to prove his point here. We find this in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? The book of Genesis was considered a law book. It provided the origins of the people within the Pentateuch. This was known as the law or the Torah. Verse 22, for it's written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, remember Hagar was Sarah's servant, and one by a free woman, who was Sarah. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh. Remember, Ishmael was of the result of Abraham and Sarah trying to bypass God's will by using Hagar as a surrogate. That made their actions fleshly, doing something in their own human design. And he goes on to say, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. This was God delivering on his promise supernaturally by giving a son to this elderly couple. This could only happen by the power of the Lord. Verse 24. Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. Now, I want to stop right here just a minute 
I want to be careful. Paul is saying, I am using this example symbolically, not literally. As an apostle, he could do this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I don't think we're allowed to do such a thing today and make it God's will for our lives. I don't see license to do that here. Paul could as an inspired writer, but I don't. Just want to state that up front. Verse 24, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now remember, Mount Sinai was where Moses received the law in Arabia. (sighs) This is crazy. Moses received the law on behalf of the Jews on Mount Sinai. And Paul is saying that this is the covenant that puts you in slavery. So Paul is saying here for the Jews of his day, those who do not put their faith in Christ exclusively are still enslaved by the law. Verse 26, but the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. By Jerusalem above, Paul is referring to the Christian's heavenly home, our true inheritance. And he is saying any Christian, Jew or Gentile, is free from the obligations of the law. And now he quotes from Isaiah 54, which refers to the first covenants that God made with the inhabitants of the earth. For it is written, rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, meaning you Gentile Christians that he was writing to, Paul, the Orthodox Jew, calls them brothers. And sisters is also implied in the Greek too. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just at that time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? And here he paraphrases Genesis 21.10 that we just read. Cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. And his primary point is the first verse of the next chapter, chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul is saying, folks, it is not obedience to the law that makes you acceptable to God. It is not your good behavior that earns you brownie points in heaven. It is only Jesus. So Gentile Christians, if you are putting your faith in Jesus on your behalf, then you can believe it and you can be assured by that alone because God always keeps his promises. What a wonder this is for us. Friend, if you're sitting in these pews and you're outside of Christ, it doesn't matter your age, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't even matter how bad you think your sins have been, salvation is available to you today in Jesus. 
You don't have to earn it. In fact, you cannot earn it. You just open up your heart and you accept it. You come to Jesus and you tell him, I do not deserve your righteousness, but by faith I'm going to grab onto it and trust that you will cover my sin. That is a spirit-empowered work that happens in your heart just like it was spiritually, supernaturally produced when Isaac came into the world. You must be born again. God's Spirit must work in your heart to cause you to place your faith in Christ alone. And for my brothers and sisters out there, think on this. If God promised to save you, will he renege on his promise? Will he? No. Will he revoke his word when he says he has an inheritance in heaven waiting for us that is internal and is imperishable? When he says, I love you, will he ever remove his love from those who are in his beloved son, Jesus? No, he will not. In fact, he cannot because God always keeps his promises. Always. And there is a simple truth as to why this is the case. He is the all-powerful creator. He merely spoke words and things came into existence. He created the vast universe. He is over the weather. He is over other kings and governments. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the alpha and the omega. He is the beginning and the end. All things in his sight are like tiny little insects. He is over the angels. He has conquered sin and his enemies, and he's conquered death and the grave, and he reigns forevermore. This is the one true triune God. He is that mighty. He is that powerful. It proves what we've been saying all along. What Yahweh wants, amen. Therefore, when he says, I love you, And I will never let you go, and I only intend good for your life, despite how you feel in this particular moment, you can believe it. You can trust it. The one who saved your soul is the one who holds your soul. And nothing, nothing with a God that powerful, nothing can remove you out of his grasp. He's the one that holds you. And so whatever experience that you are going through today, whether you are going through a relationship experience that is just tearing your soul apart right now, or whether you are facing an uncertain future due to your circumstances, or you may even be approaching heaven at this point, you can trust your God who gave his one and only son, his beloved son, so that he could make you his, he has you. He holds your soul. That is your God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so magnificent. You are so wonderful. You have proven yourself over and over again throughout history that you can do the impossible. You can create out of nothing. You can cover the world with a flood and save people from that. 
you can produce in an elderly couple a child who will become the child of promise, the child of the covenant. You can create a people for yourself to represent you on the earth, and you can call and demand that they be holy. And when they are disobedient to you, Lord, you can chastise them. But even in your chastisement, you always have your remnant. You always hold fast to your beloved. And you can become flesh and enter into this world. And through your Son, you can achieve righteousness for a sinful people. Merely for those who are willing to believe in that. And you proved that you hold power over sin and death when your son Jesus rose from the grave. And because of that, we have assurance that what awaits us on the other side is bliss. It is heaven. It is an eternal home. It is imperishable, uncorruptible, and it is ours because of what Christ has wrought for us. So, Lord, work in us today when we are discouraged, when our faith is weak. We pray, Lord, that you would increase that faith, that you would make us strong, even if we're only clinging to by our fingernails, that, Lord, you would make us know that your power is sufficient, your grace is sufficient in such a moment. May we understand the true God who stands behind his word to love us forevermore. We pray this all in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen.